welcome to Coastal Horizons, a podcast of Reef Check California. My name is Dan Schwartz, and I'm going to be taking you on a journey of what lies under the cliffs and beaches in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of California. We're part of the Reef Check Foundation, a global network of citizen scientist divers who are trained to survey nearshore reef and generate data about the health of the reef by the status of key indicator species. Our goal is to collect unbiased data, not perform advocacy. Hello, welcome to today's podcast, Climate Change Monitoring Hobos. Hope you enjoy. I'm always amazed that we can put something in the ocean, you know, 30 feet down a mile off the coast and go back the next year and find it. <laughs> I'm with Dan Abbott, Reef Check California, Central Coast Manager. Dan, ReefCheck has historically focused on the collection of biological data, fish, invertebrates, algae, corals, as a way to assess the health of a reef. Where did the idea of adding environmental climate change data come from? The interest in combining the climate change monitoring data with our biological data came from the scientific community, came from the state. In what ways does ocean temperature affect biological data? I mean, it's a great question um and there is so much and we are seeing so many so many changes um i mean a big one is like sea star wasting disease and the and we still haven't really completely dialed down um what what the ultimate cause is we know it's it's the proximate cause of the virus but what caused the virus to spread so quickly when it when it did um and it did coincide with those warm water years so there is at least some thought that it is related to water temperature at least partially so that that'd be one huge thing right and um and that had a huge effect on you know kelp forests all all up and down the coast as well as like intertidal environments and sand flats um and then like you said as well you see we're seeing range shifts of fish so more what we think of southern california fish like sheephead um becoming you know moving up to monterey and becoming more more common there um so that's another thing that we that we're seeing. And the other thing that's really important to keep in mind when you talk about climate change in the oceans, uh, it's not just temperature, you know? Um, I mean, there's, uh, it's also, you know, pH, which can have a huge effect on marine organisms, ocean acidification. Um, and that's, that's, that's definitely a, a real big focus of our, of our project, but it can also, you know, change currents. It can change, you know, patterns in, you know, I don't know, fog, which can, can affect light, which can affect plants. So there's kind of a whole slew of, of changes beyond um, just temperature that can affect these oceans. And so that's why we, are, we have these temperature units, but we also have pH and dissolved oxygen. And we're seeing a lot of interest in us deploying these on the ocean floor? Well, I think there's a lot of interest. It's not an area that I think has a ton of data in it, but you, you one would think that, you know, we'll changes we will see in pH or temperature, you know, might correlate to changes we see in the biological stuff. And one thing to note, or one of the drivers of this project in particular, is that there's a lot of sensors on the surface or near the surface, but there's not a whole lot that are on the bottom. Um, and of course, that's what we do. We're, we do research on the bottom. And so it was kind of a nice, nice uh, project for us or something that we could handle. This evening, we're anchored off a town called San Simeon. We're day three of four surveying the Big Sur coast. To the north, a couple miles up, yellowfin seal bulls of Piedro Blancas 
Not the Alpha Bulls, but they're still as big as a Prius, are onshore molting. And Hearst Castle is ducked in front of us behind some hills. It's where I caught up with. I'm Kate, and I work for ReefCheck as the Climate Change Research Coordinator. Uh, my job is mostly to work with these sensors that we have, that these oceanographic sensors that monitor ocean chemistry, so temperature, pH, oxygen, and we install those up and down the California coast to monitor any changes that might be happening in our survey sites. When I was doing one of my surveys, I noticed that there was the float out there. Was that already put out there by your skiff, or how did that, or is something that you guys dropped uh, kicking out earlier before us? So the float you saw was probably just my SMB, the the one you shoot up from the bottom. Um, I'm using that to mark the place where we're installing a new hobo. And basically what we do is once we found our spot where we put a new one in, which is attached to a bolt and epoxied onto the reef, we'll shoot up a float. And then at that float, we'll take a GPS point. And that will be our GPS point that we'll use in the future to swap that site. So you're only making the epoxy once in its lifetime, or do you have to do this every year? It should be once in a lifetime. That stuff holds very well, we found, historically. It does not go away. It's very solid. When we speak of the temperature sensors as hobos, no, that's not a reef check nickname. It's not an acronym. Onset is the manufacturer. And by their own website, basically they had an affinity for things train-related. Their early products had railroad names, stowaway, boxcar, handcar, and the hobo. The hobos, they say, stay hidden in the background, but they did the jobs they were asked to do and did them well because their lives depended on it. Yeah, so for the temperature units, those are fairly easy to install because they're all so small. So um, we just use a marine epoxy um, and we mix it either right before we get in the water or sometimes if we're, you know, it, it hardens as soon as you mix it. So if it's going to be a long time before you get to where you want to install it, sometimes we'll bring down the two parts of the epoxy and mix them under underwater. And we just find a natural crack in the, in the rock, kind of clean it up a little bit, scrape off some algae and shove that epoxy in there. And then we put an eye bolt. Uh, and let that sit, and then we take a, these little hobo temperature loggers and cable tie them to that eye bolt, um, and uh, that's it. And, I mean, the amazing thing is is that even along, say, the Big Sur Coast, where you have a tremendous amount of wave energy and huge winter storms, that setup lasts uh, an entire year. And so this year, we were able to recover 100% of our units that were, that were out there, which is pretty cool. That was a new deployment, but there's also a redeployment where you have an existing hobo sensor and now you have to go out and find it and replace it. Yeah, that's, keep hoping they last a year before you right. come back and get them. And why don't you tell us uh, what exactly do you do? Because sometimes it looks like you took the Zodiac out and that's like the, the skiff boat. Uh, you've set up, the, you have a handheld GPS little Jarman and a waterproof case and you can get within a foot of where these things are they are yeah the GPS is pretty accurate it depends how we go out to get it sometimes we can use the GPS on the boat other times when we shore dive we drag it with us on the surface um, we basically take it out there find the spot with the GPS and drop down 
Um, there's one usually deployed out there if we're swapping it, and we'll basically cut it free from its zip ties, which hold it to this bolt onto a, the reef. It's kind of epoxied into the reef, so it's permanent. And we cut this little unit out. It's this little temperature hobo is what it's called, and it's only about an inch and a half across, and cut it free and put in a new one with zip ties, and then that sits out there for another six months to a year. We have them placed all at about 40, 45 feet just for consistency. Um, the idea is to get one at nearly every one of our survey sites, and that way we can compare the data with our surveys to our temperature data, and it can possibly paint a fuller picture of what is happening at that site. Um, we have about 70 of them out right now, and they are at many, many of our sites. So it, it's up and down the entire coast, from Southern California up to Northern California. Many of the hobo installations were performed by Dan. While doing surveys along the Big Sur coast, I noticed he not only had sheets with the GPS coordinates, but he also made hand-drawn relief maps of the area as well. I try to be as careful as possible drawing maps and getting as good of a GPS point as possible and you know, writing down features in the area and what it looks like. So you get down and, and you kind of have you know, you know where to, where to look. So, you know, if it's along a crack that runs east-west and it's on the, on the, you know, south side, I'll, you know, at 25 feet, I'll, I'll write all that, I'll write all that down. So if you, if you do drop down and you're 10 or 15 feet off, but you can find, you know, like as opposed to looking for a one inch long temperature unit, you just look for that crack. You can find that. Um, it make, makes it a lot easier. You know, it's important to know that GPSs don't work underwater. You have to do everything on the surface. And then, you know, when you deploy it, you got to get a GPS on the surface, but it's hard to know if you're exactly over the top of it. And then when you go back, you got to go to that same point and drop down and try to drop down straight down. You could see how you could end up being kind of far away if you don't do that really well. And in Big Sur this time, I mean, we had some where we would drop down within feet of the unit, which is just amazing. So it's been it's been working really well. And yeah, like uh, especially this last year, we've had a really good good uh, retention rate of finding these these things and swapping them out. How often do you swap out the loggers, Kate? It totally depends on the site. Um, the temperature loggers we are generally doing every six months, every twice or twice a year, and that seems to be working pretty well. But for the more difficult to access sites, we'll probably leave it as a year, like in Big Sur. Okay. Yeah, we take this boat out once a year in June, and um, yeah, we can't swap these out any other way. The coast is just too rugged. We partner with anybody else, uh, university or um, not? Not the temperature sensors. The bigger arrays we do. Okay, so we have something else that we're putting in besides temperature sensors. That's right. Yes, we have these big arrays, and that's a big part of our climate change research project. Um, these arrays do pH, dissolved oxygen, and also temperature as well. We only have six of them, and we put them up and down the coast. Um, it, from Southern California to Northern California and trying to just fill in the holes that are not being monitored as well by other people. So we have two down in Southern California, two in Central and two in Northern. And they are basically placed where one is in a more exposed area and one is in a more protected area to try to... Okay, so when you picture. say array, when, that's tough for me to wrap my head around, like what do you mean by an array? We call them arrays because um, it's multiple things that they're looking at. There's the one that does pH, which is in its own tube, 
Um, it's sealed inside of a tube with a little sensor tip that sticks out. Then we have oxygen, which is a separate unit attached to that tube. And then it has another hobo itself, although it actually does temperature on its own as well. For the larger units, uh, the pH meters will... How big are they? They're maybe a foot and a half long and then uh, four to five inches in diameter. And there's even kind of multiple units on there, but that's kind of the, the, the main one. And they're also very valuable. The temperature units are relatively inexpensive. So if you lose them, it's not the end of the world, whereas these other ones are, you know, quite, quite pricey. So for those, uh, because of their size and their value, it's a little bit more involved. And so for those, we actually drill in to the rock. So we take down, you know, so we dive down with a pneumatic drill that runs off scuba tanks and we drill holes in into the rock for, for a holes. And that can take, you know, go as quickly as say 20 minutes or it can take 40 minutes or, or, or longer. Um, and we have to switch out scuba tanks. We might go through, you know, half a dozen tanks just of, of air just drilling in these holes. Sometimes the rock is very brittle actually. And like you drill a hole, but then it kind of just falls apart. Um, so I was wondering, cause some of it is the California granite and some of these are. Some- yeah, exactly. And so some of the sites that don't have the granite and have a weaker rock, it's, it's, it can be hard to find spots where it's strong enough. But yeah, so for those, we drill four holes and then we take little concrete anchors and, and put them in the, in the holes and we put some of that epoxy in there as, as well as a, as a backup. And then we then screw in four eye bolts to these concrete anchors in the epoxy in the, in the holes. And then we bring down the unit and we use hose clamp. I think a total of four hose clamps to secure it into the bottom. So, so that even if we do lose, say one, one of the bolts comes loose or whatever, Hopefully the other three will hold it in place. And again, a lot of these are deployed in pretty high energy areas like Point Arena is, is one where, you know, that just gets a lot of wave, wave action. So you really got to make sure the thing is secured. These sensors will be able to detect if dissolved oxygen has been changing um, in those sites as well. You know, ox- water contains oxygen and that's what fish and all these in, in rivers live off of. Um, and so... What we're seeing in some areas anyways is, a, is an increase in these hypoxic zones, areas that have very, very low oxygen. Um, and when that happens, you know, organisms can really suffer. Some of them are able to move and avoid these, these areas or move out of them, but others that are just kind of stuck there. Um, so, yeah, we're definitely kind of monitoring these dissolved oxygen or these low oxygen areas. Um, and that's why we have these six units up and down the state have two of them in each of the regions, so six total in California, one in our, you know, really high energy sites, those ones that are the real gnarly ones, and then you have them in the calm ones. So in the North Coast here, mine are in Van Dam and Point Arena. It seems to me the entire Sonoma and Mendocino coasts get hammered pretty well. What makes Point Arena more gnarly than the rest of the Mendonoma coast? Yeah, it's, it's the angle of Point Arena. It's, okay. it's an interesting one. Um, but that place gets rocked. And I mean, they just made it a national monument to the, the land okay. area, um, BLM, BLM land, and then they just carved out some trails. But if you walk over there and look at the geography of the, of the coastline, that's what you get underwater. And that place gets rocked. Um, you can just tell the way that the sandstone is just sloughed off and how you're left with this um, just hard pan that's just exposed from wave energy and wind. Up on the north coast, Tristan has her calm site, which would be Van Damme, and then her exposed site of uh, Point Arena. 
and Point Arena certainly is pretty rough area over there by the lighthouse. You being on the central area, what would be your calm and exposed sites that you get to deal with? Our sites are Big Creek, which is in Big Sur, where we actually passed um, earlier today. And the protected one, or supposedly more protected, is Point Buchan, which is in Morro Bay. And that one, is, it's a, still a bit, bit exposed there, a bit challenging to get to. Tell us what, what it gets involved with when you, when you get into something like uh, Big Creek. Big Creek, that site involves a shore dive. Um, we try to time it with the best conditions because it can be a little rough getting in. And fortunately, that one has a permanent transect laid out, so we swim out to the transect and drop down on it. It's very easy to navigate to that site. We get over there, and first thing we do is we start working on the hose clamps that hold the sensor down to the bolts that are moored to the reef. Um, epoxied in the same way as the temperature units and we just start loosening those straight away Um, while one person's working on that the other person goes ahead and calibrates the sensor by using this tris solution it's called tris and it's basically fake seawater that is analyzed we know exactly what's in it so we hit the sensor with that fake seawater just to make sure that it's reading what we want it to be reading and we can compare that to what it actually collected and once we free that out we put the other one in hose clamp it again which again is more lots of screwing with the hose clamps and once the once that new sensor is bolted down we take the old one back and download the data at home Dan, I was wondering, with so many of our survey sites in the Monterey Bay, from Canary Row to Carmel Bay's Point Lobos, why are the central coast arrays way down in Morro Bay? We don't have any sensors in the Monterey area because that is an area that is actually really well studied already. There's already a lot of sensors in there. And so the project we got was kind of was directed at areas that don't already have sensors out there, areas of the coast that are less studied, which is kind of a strength of our program that we take on the entire coast. Kate, I was wondering, what kind of shape are these sensors in after they've been sitting out in the ocean for three months to a year? There will be, usually there'll be some scuzz on it, brown scuzz that grows on it after it sits out there for months. The ones that sit out for a year will sometimes have more. Um, Just this last couple dives, we did find one that was covered in sponge. It was totally just covered in it. You could barely see the hobo itself. Um, And then we also had some bryzone growing on another one. So stuff does grow on it. It becomes part of the reef. Yeah, these these sensors, they're in a waterproof enclosure, and you haven't had knockwood, you haven't had any problems with those things breaking down yet? We've had good luck with these so far. Um, Yeah, they've held pretty well, considering they've been sitting out there for months, having things grow on them and everything. We've had very few that flooded so far. And we have a whole network of, of divers. I mean, some of these things are serviced by reef check staff. Others are serviced by, or at least in partnership with some of the other groups that we work with, like the Department of Fish and Wildlife or Aquarium of the Pacific using their, their boats and maybe their, their divers. Some of these things are serviced by our volunteer reef check divers. You just go out with a buddy and locate the hobo with a GPS point and dive down and cut the cable ties off and put a new one on and swim back to the surface and then mail it in and we download all that data and put it in our database. We have these split by region. Usually the reef check managers will kind of control their region as far as swapping sensors, um, whether they be the little temperature loggers or the arrays. 
Um, and we're hoping to eventually move this on largely to volunteers, but especially uh, right now the temperature loggers, um, which hopefully the volunteers will be able to go out and swap them on their own. We've just started doing this in Central California and to an extent in Southern California, where the volunteers will pick up these little kits, which have everything they need to swap the loggers and go out on their own to get them. And the training programs, is going to be difficult for them, or is it pretty much hand them some zip ties? And it's more or less, the hardest part is finding them, because finding. it really is a needle in the haystack. It's a tiny little logger, just an inch and a half across or so, in a humongous reef. So it can be challenging to find. Um, once they find it, it's very simple. And so far, they've been doing a great job finding them and swapping them out. And how, how many years have you been doing this now? Um, almost two years. And the data, has it been showing anything? Or is it still, still too early? It's a bit early to say anything, and this project is quite new, so we're still kind of figuring it out. There are some practical things, such as growth that we're getting on our sensor faces that is damaging the data so we're still trying to solve problems like that um, so that we're figuring it out as we go but it, we're starting to get good data and over the years hopefully we'll build up a good database and as we've checked the one are you going to be responsible for uh, analyzing the data and uh, inputting it into some kind of database or does that get handed off to somebody else we work together with um, the Croker Lab at U University of California at Santa Cruz, as well as Mbari, who designed our pH sensors for us. Um, and it's collaboration between ReefCheck and those two organizations largely. Um, Croker Lab does a lot of the data analysis and things like that. And when you design this, is it just an ongoing project? That's to be seen on funding, right? Got it. Yeah. yeah. It's all based on funding. One of the things we're working on right now is redoing the entire reef check database. And in particular, what data is available for free for the public. Most of our monitoring data is almost all of it. And it's, you know, real easy kind of web interface called the global reef tracker. But we haven't added the temperature data yet, but that's something that we are we are working on now. So hopefully, hopefully within the next six months or or a year, anyone can go on and click on a button and see what the temperature graph from any, any one of the sites looks like. I hope this podcast has painted an overview of the new type of research ReefCheck has taken on. Stay tuned for more podcasts. Future episodes will cover not just our research, but also amazing research that is happening at the various local marine labs, Moss Landing, Bodega, and a new one up north in Noya Harbor. I also hope to be sharing various people that support us to make it all happen. People like boat captains and harbor masters. They have great stories to tell. Also, if you like what we're doing, we are a 501 nonprofit, and any support will be warmly received. Find us on the web at reefcheck.org. Thanks for tuning in.